Hello, everybody. Just a very quick one about Instagram. If you're on it, Meta, the parent company, is reducing the number of political posts visible to users on their feed. This is a real thing, not a hoax. So go to your Instagram profile, tap the three horizontal lines in the top right corner to open the settings tab, scroll down to what you see, click on content preferences, open political content, and turn on don't limit political content. That's an option. Otherwise, you won't see almost anything we post because we are deemed political. Please do that now or you won't even see the posts about our shows, our fun things. So if you want to see Guilty Feminist content and know when we're coming to a place near you, releasing a new podcast, do it now. I'm a feminist, but while I've denied it to friends, it is true I've started dressing like Shiv Roy on a high street budget. (laughs) I have. It's true. A couple of friends have gone, are you dressing like Shiv Roy? And I'm like, no, what are you even talking about? But it is true that I've, I think I did it not on purpose, but I've just found myself subconsciously in a series of high-waisted trousers. And now I'm veering into the polo necks and it cannot be denied anymore. I know Shiv Roy is not a feminist and not a good person, but she really knows how to dress. And listen, while we're watching Succession, we might as well be learning styling choices. They're very wealthy. She's got a brilliant stylist. I'm copying and I'm pasting. I'm a feminist, but I miss working with all men sometimes because you didn't have to be polite in your emails. And I used to work in the tech industry. I was on a team of all men and I never had to say thank you at the end of emails. I rarely said hi. I feel like by the time I left that industry, I was a little bit feral. Um, and it can be difficult now when I send emails, I I have to read them through like four or five times to make sure they're polite enough. And I kind of miss how easy it used to be. Did you sort of become a man in terms of emails? In terms, of, I know what you mean, those sort of really blunt emails where a man will go, uh, won't do any of the niceness, won't do any of the, hi, how are you? Thanks for your last response. Really great. Yes. See what you yeah. mean. Yada, yada. They'll just go send it over. And you go, what? Um, they, it's like they treat emails like DMs, like WhatsApps. Yes. Yeah. 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 It was great. I do see the enjoyableness of the brevity, but also, no, I'm, <laughs> as far as I'm concerned, yeah, this is why women are more evolved and just better. I'm a feminist, but I changed into a low-cut top for this Zoom recording of The Guilty Feminist. Uh, I just, honestly, guys, I was just feeling frumpy, gang. I was just, I was upstairs. I felt like, ugh, I just, I'd been in the same clothes all day and I felt, honestly, like I wasn't glamorous enough to meet our very fabulous guest today, Maxine Peake. I was like, she's very glamorous. I feel like she's very, I know, I know she's making faces at me on the Zoom like she's not. But she's, I I mostly, Max, you're an old friend, but I mostly see you on red carpets now in pictures, you know, like pictures. You, you're you on a, you're on a BAFTA walk or something and uh, you're, you're dressed up. I don't know why I thought you were going to come in a sort of, you know, in a dinner jacket or a strapless, a strapless number. I'm in my dog walking gear. I've got a gilet on and an old cardigan that's probably about 15 years old. But I did Can I say though? put some makeup on, so that's, I'm a feminist, but, and I epilated my chin. Did you? Did you? Yes, just in case it gets a little bit um, uh, spiky. I, <laughs> I mean, it's what happens. 
But I think you look rather French because you're wearing like a striped T-shirt and you have a nautical jumper over the top. So I I think you've managed to make that look rather Parisian. And you've got very cool hair at the moment, sort of blonde, sort of, you know, you've got like a pixie cut, which I can, I'm afraid, very much not get away with. Um, I would, people would just look at me like, she's given up. But on you, it looks very cool and chic and foxy. Very kind. <laughs> I'm a feminist, but my favorite screenwriter is Aaron Sorkin. Oh, my God. Is that the end of it? Yeah, well, he doesn't really write women. Yes. That's what I'm saying. Oh, yeah, That's yeah, what yeah. I'm saying. I have no, I'm going to need no more apologies. information. I have no apologies. I know he doesn't write women, and I know what he does. They're not very evolved. Um, I know that CJ made all the mistakes on the first season of The West Wing, but it's still my favorite show. The Social Network is my favorite movie, even though women have approximately 5% of the total lines. Um, Yeah, but he's just my favorite. I love the way he writes dialogue. I don't know what you're complaining about. There's a whole girlfriend in that film. That's true. Um, That's true. Yeah. My favorite line in Difficult People, which is a sitcom, one of them's teaching a drama class to some children they look about 10 years old and he's given them an Aaron Sorkin script and two of them have come forward and the boy says, we're doing a scene um, from Let Me Tell You Something, Lady, by Aaron Sorkin. And the boy's line opens with, um, let you tell me something about the Me Too movement, lady. And then the girl says, I meant to have a British accent, but I've got no lines. (laughs) So I don't know what to do. And I find that the greatest parody of Aaron Sorkin that has ever happened. I meant to have a British accent, but I've got no lines. Um, Okay, my final I'm a feminist part is uh, I'm a feminist, but recently a male journalist said to me that Gloria Steinem once said she was only considered to be beautiful once she became a feminist. And he said to me, do you feel the same? And I said, people are saying I'm beautiful. (laughs) Who's saying that? What else did they say? I, he was, and he was clearly trying to have a go at me, like, "Oh, so you're attractive for a feminist?" And I was like, thrilled, a hundred percent delighted with that report card. Really, are people saying I'm attractive for a feminist? I take it. I will. T- and I, but I was like, "Who said that, though? Who said that? Where are you hearing that? Are you looking on Twitter? Should I search my own name, which I never do because you mustn't?" But I was like, literally, like, should I Google myself to see if someone said I'm pretty? Uh, it was not the point of his comment. He thought he was going to get a dig in. He didn't know. He didn't know what was going on inside me. Who won that one? Hey, hey. I also, I'm a feminist, but I don't even believe Gloria Steinem in that quote. I think that people thought she was beautiful before then. Oh, interesting. If you met Gloria Steinem, which I have, by the way, was she came to my show. I know, I know. That's such a a clangy and exciting name drop, but I'm, how could I, I'm a feminist, but how can I stop myself saying that? Of how course, can I just be discreet, subtle, chill? If you met Gloria Steinem, would you say to her, is that true? Because it seems like you were pretty hot before you were a feminist or before you were certainly a famous feminist. Is that just something you say? I don't think I would actually say that. And I'm a feminist, so I know I'm supposed to believe women, but... <laughs> No, I think I would just be more like starstruck and and probably not really ask her too much of anything. But it's what I would be thinking. Do you know what? I was desperate to ask her what her skincare routine is like. Because I've seen she's, photos of her recently. She's. I mean, I mean, she's. I think she might be an octogenarian now. I should check that before I put that out. I think she's like Tom. Could you just do a quick? I'm a feminist, but Tom, my producer, 
slash husband, could you do a quick check on how old Gloria Steinem is? I mean, I would hate this if this were... I think we should cut this out because I would be so angry. She's 87. 87? She's not. She is. Stop it. You're going to need to stop that right now. Okay. That can't be right. I need you to check that again. I met her like two years ago, just before the coronavirus. Wikipedia claims 87. Fucking hell. Uh, Okay. Uh, Well, I'm a feminist, but I really had to stop myself asking her about her skincare routine. I assume it's jeans, honestly. It's probably jeans, but she's an octogenarian and oh my God. She could be like 48 or 53 and no one would question it. She, I mean, she won't have had work. I know that she won't have had work. Of course she hasn't. But bloody hell. Ginny? I have one more. Oh, please. I have, I'm a feminist, but I have sold at least four or five tickets to my hour-long stand-up show by telling men that I will get a drink with them after the show. Oh! They're going to be queuing up at the bar. They're going to realise that you've promised all of them. You're just going to be surrounded. It, yeah, I mean, I don't care because after the show, it's not an issue anymore. You know, they can they can come at me. They can get mad. Once the show's done, the ticket's sold. Also, the show is about how I'm sober, so I don't know why they're dumb enough to believe that I'll go along with it. But you know what? A ticket sale is a ticket sale, and it doesn't matter. As a, Even though I'm a feminist, it doesn't matter to me why they buy it. Once you've got their money, that all bets are off. Yeah. You know. And yeah, I mean, you you look have a lemonade with a crowd of adoring men who've come to see you. You never know. One of them, one of them might uh, turn out to be. Oh my God, I'm a feminist, but one of them might turn out, turn out to be your future husband. It's, I was just yeah, about to yeah, say. Hopefully. Oh my God, I've needed to watch Sex in the City because of we've been doing recaps as a sort of bonus episode thing. And I think I'm starting to talk like Charlotte. What am I saying? I'm so sorry. I apologise to the listeners for assuming a man might be someone's future husband. That's not the spirit of this show. I had a draft I'm a feminist that was I'm a feminist, but my favourite Sex and City character is Charlotte. She's feminist in her way, but also in many ways, she's not. She's not. Do you know what I read, though? Kristen Davis said in an interview, uh, when asked, are you like Charlotte? She said, no, I'm a Carrie. <gasps> Kristen Davis is a Carrie. Good for her. Yeah, that's what she said. Isn't that brilliant? Yeah. And I think Carrie might be a bit of a Charlotte. I think SJP might be a bit of Charlotte because she married someone young and had kids. And, da, da, da. and I'm not saying she's our Charlotte, but Kristen Davis was saying in this interview, I was never sure I wanted to be married or settle down. I didn't know. I didn't know. I didn't know. So I think this is a scoop, gang. I think Carrie is a Charlotte and Charlotte is a Carrie in real life. I know. Please at me wherever necessary. Uh, Max, do you have any other I'm a feminist buts you wish to declare before we go into the meat of the potatoes of this? I'm a feminist, but when I'm out on a bike ride with the cycle club, if I get a puncture, I am quite happy for the men on the ride to fix it for me without getting my hands dirty. Very happy for them to all come charging over and go, we'll do that. And I go, oh, oh, I'll just get my... Oh, thanks. Yeah, (laughs) very, yeah. Yeah, my my feminism takes a little rest if I get a flat tyre and a car as well. I'm like, no. Yeah, no. Um, I feel women have done enough at this point. I don't feel like, I feel like, listen, if I'm going to rest my feminism for half an hour, best there and not while on a march or trying to get real change done. Yeah. You can't be, you can't be full blast feminist all the time. So what I would suggest is be full blast feminist when you're trying to change the world, not a tyre. <laughs> That's all I'm saying. 
That's all I'm saying, gang. Um, <laughs> I love that. That's a T-shirt. Yeah. Change the I world, f- not a tire. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> they could do that. Um, From a variety of bedrooms and kitchens via Zoom, the Spontaneity Shop presents The Guilty Feminist with me, Deborah Francis-White, guest co-host Ginny Hogan, and our very special guest, Maxine Peake, talking about there's many ways to be a feminist. This is The Guilty Feminist, the podcast in which we explore our noble goals as 21st century feminists and the hypocrisies and insecurities which undermine them. I'm Deborah Francis-White, with me is Ginny Hogan, and we're talking about how many ways there are to be a feminist. Uh, Ginny, there's lots of different ways to be a feminist. That's our theme today. But can I just say, I found your Twitter almost like a living, rolling, I'm a feminist, but at most times. And can I, is, is it okay if I read the listeners some of your tweets? Absolutely. I love hearing I mean, my that is, tweets. <laughs> that's the greatest compliment anyone could ever have. Uh, here's a recent one. When people call me ugly online... It's like, weren't you paying attention? I said I was hot, which I enjoyed very much. I judge the quality of an orgasm by how many minutes I enjoy it before checking my phone again. I'm pretty casual with sex, like I don't call it intercourse or anything fancy. I want to date a man who's just very grateful to be included in the sex. Uh, Dating apps should have a drop-down menu where you get to select how desperate you are. Can you see what I mean? Feeding a baby is like waiting to see if the ATM machine will accept or reject your card. If you tell people you have a drinking problem, there's a 20% chance they'll explain why you don't and an 80% chance they'll explain why they don't. So great. Uh, All day, my day, you know, if I ever go on Twitter, I immediately go to you because you're always making my day. Um, It says here, have sex. It'll keep you off social media for a bit. I feel like hot people have an easier time having casual sex because when it doesn't work out, they're still hot. (laughs) And here's a feminist one. Am I in a permanent bad mood or have I just finally started standing up for myself for the first time in my life? Ginny, tell us uh, what drew... I just want to get to know you a little bit better. What drew you into comedy and how much do you define yourself as a feminist? Um, I define myself as more of a guilty feminist than a feminist, but I'll answer your first question first. Um, I was a data scientist in San Francisco and I worked among all men in the tech industry and um, probably one of my more guilty feminist things is that I was very bored by my job, but I knew that I couldn't really get fired because I was the only woman on my team. So I, at work, just started writing this like humor blog about my online dates and then I started doing stand-up while I still worked in tech. And before long, I was only doing my job for like a couple hours a day. And mostly I was just writing comedy. And I did that for like a little over a year. And then I quit my job. Why did you think you couldn't get fired because you were the only woman? Well, because then they would have had to hire another woman. And that was just very difficult. The coworkers, so many of them were like casual misogynists that we would bring a woman in and they would be like, oh, she's wearing too much makeup or something a little more subtle than that. But... It was very oh clear God. that they didn't want it was it was very difficult for them to hire a second woman, which made me believe that they definitely wouldn't want to get rid of me. So you could still be billing them, really. You could be still doing comedy full time and, and say, look, here's the deal. You pay me the full salary and you get to say you have a woman in your team for your diversity numbers. I do feel like I should have tried that. I think I, I so I didn't quit this job and I did have a feeling like six months later that in not getting fired, I was leaving money on the table basically because 
I didn't want to go back to the tech industry, so I was like, I might as well have just done nothing until I got fired. And that could have right. been years. So you're a feminist, but you have lowered the ratio of women in tech by leaving your job and coming into comedy. Yes, but I've increased the percentage of women in tech who are good at their jobs, which I think does a lot for women. I'm sure you were good at your job before you got distracted and decided you liked comedy more. I, w- I actually, I was pretty good at my job. It wasn't a super hard job, but I, I liked math for a long time. So I was like kind of doing data science math stuff. Um, fun. And it was fun for a little while. Yeah. What drew you to comedy? I think I always thought I was funny and I was very shy and no one uh, seemed to notice that I was funny. And I feel like it for a long time, I was just like, why, why has no one picked up on this? You know? Um, and I started writing this like anonymous data blog about my online dates that um, where I kind of collected data about the dates and then graphed them and did like machine learning on them and added a lot of jokes. And one of those just like blew up on this weird, like text specific Reddit that I think it still exists, but it was bigger at the time. It was called Y Combinator. And um, from there, I was like, maybe I could do comedy. And I I sort of just wanted something else to do because I was getting very bored of the tech industry. Right. Um, Well, listen, you've gone from one industry that doesn't have enough women to another industry that doesn't have enough women. So we will allow it. Yes. And uh, we are uh, thrilled to have you in comedy, although I'm sure it is tech's loss. Uh, So... In terms of that, you are powering through for professions in which women are underrepresented. And in that way, you're doing the feminist deal. We would love to hear some of your comedy. Would you like to do some for us? Absolutely. Yeah, I thought maybe I could tell some of my like engineering jokes about being a woman in tech. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, please welcome to the mic, Jenny Hogan. Hi, guys. Oh, my gosh. It's so great to be here. So I used to be an engineer. And the type of engineer I was, I was a um, a uh, a female engineer. That was my job title, <laughs> and and all my job security. To be honest, um, my first job out of college was at a vegan mayo tech startup. I am I am that white, yeah, vegan mayo tech startup. <laughs> Each word whiter than the last. Um, <laughs> my coworkers at this company thought I was very funny. I don't mean to brag, but I was once described as a hoot. And <laughs> they were the world experts on funny because they were men. Um, I don't know if you guys Not. know this. I don't know if you know this about men, but men are so funny. It's actually very convenient. <laughs> it's it's super handy. Like sometimes I don't even get my own jokes until men explain them back to me. You know, I used to make this one joke all the time. I would say, I can't get fired because you can't fire female engineers, as we were just discussing. Um, not only was I lazy, I was very open about my laziness. And I got called into human resources one time. And the HR guy was like, listen, Ginny, people are very upset about that joke. And I was like, look, the audiences don't like it either, okay? (laughs) Structurally weak, no clear punchline, and not that funny. And he was like, that's a good point. As a man, I agree. But the real issue is that people think it's offensive. And I was like, okay, am I going to get fired? And he was like, no, we don't fire female engineers, you know? to find another one. I do, working with old men was mostly annoying, but there were some perks. Like if I ever didn't want to work one day, I could just skip wearing makeup and they would send me homesick. <laughs> really great. Ladies, after COVID, it's only going to get easier. Um, I, yeah, I don't know. Men are so wild to me. I learn the craziest facts about them all the time. Like I learned the most wild thing about men recently. 
Did you guys know that the way that a man looks when he wakes up in the morning is the way he looks that day? Yes. <laughs> that whole day. Yeah. Like, yeah. who wakes up in the morning, looks in the mirror, and is like, this will do, you know? <laughs> Sociopaths. <laughs> against, against my better judgment, I do sleep with men. I consider myself a slut, um, which does mean that any and all criticism of me technically counts as slut-shaming. <laughs> I uh, I once slept with three men in one weekend, although in my defense, it was a three-day weekend, you know? <laughs> I feel I was simply following instructions. I um, My therapist, though, asked me if I use sex to get men to like me, and I was like, no, not effectively, you know? <laughs> I've been trying for years. Um, but I did, I did catch a boyfriend recently. Um, uh, I was in a relationship about a year ago. At one point in the relationship, he told me I brought up the best in him, and I was like, this? <laughs> the best in you? Uh, it was dark. Um, he broke up with me, and then four months later, I ran into him in a Trader Joe's. I was in a very compromising position. I was holding two sample cups. Whew, it was so embarrassing. <laughs> two of the fun ones, too. And he started the conversation with long time no see. And I was like, yeah, as per your request, you know, <laughs> what a weird thing to say to the person who explicitly asked you go an indefinite amount of time without seeing. Anyway, <laughs> I'm back out there now. I am back out there. I'm very quiet in bed. Um, I warned a man recently that I was going to be quiet in bed because outside of bed, I'm quite loud. And I told him this and he asked if that meant that I was going to be boring in bed. And I was like, yes, <laughs> obviously. I mean, how creepy would that be <laughs> if I were completely wild, but silent, <laughs> like a cat having a seizure? <laughs> so insane. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much. That's my Zoom stand up. Jenny Hogan, everybody. You're the most successful person I've ever seen at doing Zoom stand-up. You managed to, like, sell every joke, so I really wanted to laugh at it, even though, like, I was the only person here. That was great. I think your stuff is so Guilty Feminist. I think the Guilty Feminists are going to love you. I really hope you're going to come over so that you can come and do a live show. I would love to. My parents live in London. My, my trip at Christmas got canceled. I got COVID, and to be honest... It was, yeah, it was definitely very much my fault. I was, like, socializing a lot, going to Christmas parties, and then, like, two days after, the huge COVID wave hit, so I was like, I wouldn't have done all these Christmas parties, but, um, yeah, I, I kind of knew I had COVID as soon as I realized everyone else had it, so I had to cancel the trip, um, but I do want to, yeah, I want to go back. It's been hard. I went to go see them after I first got vaccinated, which was, like, in April, um, but I haven't seen them since, and I, I would love to go. Yeah, I usually go, like, twice a year. Well... Omicron also scuppered me and my Christmas as well. Tom and I had Christmas. We had ourselves a COVID little Christmas. Oh, no. And with some lateral flows. We were out for the count every Christmas. So similarly, I mean, we hadn't, you know, we were trying to be careful, but we'd done shows. And then I went to one, you know, Christmas party where everyone had to test before they were allowed to come. And that was, you know, whatever. I don't know where I got it. It probably was at a show. Who knows? But it felt like, yeah, we can go out there again. And then immediately this variant hit and then we all got knocked over. So I 
actually haven't been back to Australia for two years, which is where I grew up and where my family is. So um, uh, I hear the disappointment at not being able to come and see your mom and dad at Christmas. Uh, but we hope that COVID, it's there. They keep saying, pandemic experts keep saying, we think this is the last of it. It's going away yeah. now. It's going to be fine. <laughs> so I hope that you can come over to London and that we can meet you here. Um, can I ask you, because the theme is lots of different kinds of feminists, who are your favourite feminists? My current favourite feminist is AOC. Uh, she's definitely my favourite person in Congress. And uh, I also think she's so good at Twitter and this person is on Twitter all the time. I really admire that. I feel like that's how she's really going to... Become the next president, honestly. Just engage everyone. Wow. Yeah. So she's, because she's funny on Twitter. She uses memes and stuff. She yeah. really does. She gets Twitter. Yeah. See, I think you are so big on Twitter and she is so big on Twitter. And you're both so good on Twitter. I feel like it's only a matter of time before you two become friends and then make me your third best friend. I would love that very much. Yeah. Well, yeah. Keep my fingers crossed. I'll keep liking all of her tweets. I'll start replying to everything. I think it's best to get her properly. If you could, and then maybe she'll slide into your DMs and be like, Ginny, you're so funny. Why don't you come to Washington, D.C. and we'll all hang out? Such a dream. Do you know Deborah Francis White for The Guilty Feminist? It's my favorite podcast. We'll all be best friends. I'll get her on the pod. That'll be great. Then I need you between now and when I next come to America to make it your absolute mission and goal to get to know her so we can all hang out and do drinks. I would love that. I don't think I have that good of a shot because I would imagine that she has, both she herself and her team of people know that it's not wise to be you know maybe accidentally liking a tweet about sex and as you you mentioned in reading my tweets i i do have a lot of sex tweets i don't want to get aoc in trouble um and i, I that- feel like this is not the feminist spirit would aoc lie down and go i don't think i can make this happen no that's why she's aoc that's a good you gotta point. go after it Ginny. that's a good gotta point. set okay. your okay, mind okay. Yeah. to become best friends with aoc she could slide into your DMs. We don't know. She doesn't have to publicly like things. AOC, if you're listening, and I'm sure you are, slide into Ginny Hogan's DMs, become friends. When I come over, we'll all go for cocktails. I feel like we've got to have goals and resolutions yeah, for this year. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm excited. I'm excited, Ginny. And in the meantime, we hope to see you in London and come along and do a live show. Yeah, I would love that so much. Hello, Guilty Feminist. Just very quickly pausing this episode to say the Guilty Feminist live UK tour starts in Brighton and Nottingham on Saturday, the 5th of March and Sunday, the 6th of March. These are going to be big, exciting, lively shows with Guilty Feminist favourite comedians and special local guests and musicians coming to your town. So get your tickets now. You won't want to miss this. We are also back at Vicar Street in Dublin with Alison Spittle on the 14th of March. Whether you're a gay Michael or not, please come along to that. Get your tickets now. There is a Valentine's special at King's Place on the 14th of February. One episode will be a crossover episode uh, with Homo Sapiens, which is about all things queer. It'll be called The Guilty Homo Sapien. And then the other episode we'll record that night after the interval will be with the wonderful Susan Wacoma. Both of those will be an alternative to your Valentine's Day. So whether you're single or looking for a date, it's going to be a Guilty Feminist Valentine's special you won't want to miss. We will be touring Australia and New Zealand in July. And we are coming to Sydney, Melbourne, Brisbane, Canberra, Adelaide and Perth. 
We're also coming to Auckland, Wellington and Christchurch. And finally, if you had tickets for Campus Christmas, it's now called Campus Springtime uh, because COVID cancelled Christmas. Uh, your ticket is still valid and it's on March the 31st, still co-hosted by me and Tom Allen, still featuring self-esteem and an incredible lineup of comedians. So to hold on to those tickets, put March 31st in your diary. If you haven't got a ticket, there are still some left, but not many. So get them now. You can get tickets for all of these shows that I've just talked about at guiltyfeminist.com. And you can get ad-free episodes of The Guilty Feminist by supporting us on Patreon. And now back to the podcast. Our guest today is an actor and writer who made her name as Twinkle in Victoria Wood's Dinner Ladies and has since appeared in numerous highly acclaimed shows, including Shameless, Silk and The Village. Most recently, she has portrayed activist Anne Williams in ITV's Anne and Sam Thompson in BBC's Rules of the Game, which is a thriller that is filtered through the Me Too movement. She is also currently writing to be performed at the end of the year a musical about Betty Boothroyd, the only female speaker of the house. Please welcome to the guilty feminist, the incredible Maxine Peake. Woo! Thank you. <laughs> Hiya. Hi. It's so wonderful to have you on. I've known you for a very, very long time because yes. I think I we met when I was teaching improv to the RADA graduate program, which was an informal way that when people had recently left the Royal Academy of Dramatic Art, they could come back in the evening and sort of do top-up skills. And I was teaching improvisation and that's how I met you. And you were a yes. brilliant and very, very funny improviser. Um, and I've been delighted always over the years to see your huge throbbing success and you know catch up with you from time to time over the years. You've played so many wonderful uh, women and I'm interested in talking to you at the moment, Maxine, because all of these women embody a different sort of feminist or feminism. And I wanted to start with activist Anne Williams, because Anne was a sort of, I think, unbelievable model for insisting on justice, insisting on change, insisting on being seen and being heard and not taking no for an answer, but doing it with a passion and a resilience and channeling her anger. Could you tell the listeners a little bit about who Anne was? Because we have global listeners. So some people in this country will know, some people, most people abroad will not. Uh, just a little bit about who she was and what she stood for. So Anne Williams was the mother of a, a young boy called Kevin Williams, who went to watch a football match at Hillsborough in Sheffield and he never came home. There was a, a tragic incident where 97 now people lost their lives and Kevin was 14, nearly 15 when he went to the match. And Anne and her then husband Steve, who was um, Kevin's stepfather, went to identify the body. It was a terrible sort of situation but from then on, Anne decided she wanted to find the truth about what had happened at Hills because there was a massive cover-up. The fans were blamed, the media got involved. It was, it was horrific. So Anne then dedicated her life to finding out how Kevin died, whether he could have been saved, 
and really what was the the sort of um, chain of incidents that led up to this terrible, terrible um, Absolute disaster, but it turns out Mm. unlawful killing. Yes, yes. uh, Through incompetence, but then it was covered up. The initial investigation, they found nothing. No one was at fault and they kind of blamed the fans. They said it was a crush and it was the fans' own fault. And I think that never sat right with, well, it certainly never sat right to people in Liverpool and it certainly never sat right across the country because there are lots and lots of football fans, by which, Ginny, we mean soccer fans, which you will know from being an American who probably watches Ted Lasso, um, who know that the pens are packed and it is the responsibility of the people controlling the crowd to make sure those people are okay. Now, Anne fought and fought and fought and fought and fought and kept turning up. And eventually a second hearing was heard and it was found that was the police were at fault, wasn't it? Well, yeah, it was, they got it changed to unlawful killing, but nobody apart from, I think somebody at the ground at Hillsborough, the, the, the ground was found to be unsafe. So that was, um, you know, one sort of charge. Somebody's, I think, got fined about £5,000, somebody in charge of the ground. But apart from that, the David Duckenfield, who ordered the gates to be opened, um, who even in court stood up and said, yes, eventually it was my fault, but the jury still found him not guilty. But what the fans and the families and the survivors, I suppose some comfort to them was that the the fans were exonerated, that the jury came back and said, in absolutely no way were the fans anything to do with this because the lies were absolutely, they, they were disgusting. You know, the Sun paper said that people were urinating, the fans were urinating on dead fans. They were stealing the wallets. They were, it was horrific. It was horrific, this this lie that was perpetuated and exploded, you know, and it's still, you still talk to people who can't, can't quite see past it. You know what I mean? It's it was so deeply entrenched at the time and became this, you know, this narrative, this despicable narrative. So, so nobody's actually really ever been found guilty for the events and what happened and the disaster. But the the outcome for the activists who devoted their life to yeah. it, uh, although I'm sure many do not feel justice has been served. Exoneration has happened. Acknowledgement has happened. And in terms of people's mental health, if you fought for that for years to say, this wasn't right, these deaths were avoidable and the fans were certainly not responsible for them. That's something that's exceptionally important. Oh, yeah. Yeah. How was it playing Anne? Because Anne passed away, didn't she? Yes, she, she got cancer. So Anne had fought, so for 24 years she'd campaigned and then unfortunately she got stomach cancer. And like so, there was a lot of people who, you know, survivors and families of the victims who, you know, passed away. A lot of people didn't even get to see the unlawful killing verdict. And what people don't forget as well, there's quite a few survivors who took their own lives because they couldn't live with, you know. So it's the, the, the ripples of it that, go on and on and on but yes so Anne campaigned for 24 years and then she passed away by the time we started the drama but her daughter Sarah Williams she had a lot of input and was was fantastic with us you know she um with the whole crew and cast and a lot of input 
So this was a piece of working class activism. Yes. Does does this, Ginny, does this ring true to anything that's happened in America in terms of working class people saying this isn't fair and this isn't right and standing up and taking to the streets and taking to the courts? Is this something you recognise in your culture of both feminists and activists? I definitely think so. I mean, I feel like you see it most with like young people having that sort of spirit. Like I'm imagining like the Parkland survivors or something like that. But I I do think it's, yeah, I mean, I I think people are are starting to feel like it's the only course of action, basically. So I think it's becoming more common in that um, people are losing hope that there's any other way to change the course or change the mind of the government. I think it goes in waves in generations. Like, you know, in the 60s, people were on the streets the whole time and they were they were taking things to court in the 60s and 70s. And then there was a period in the 80s and 90s, you know, when I remember, like I was at university in the 90s and people would not go to marches and they would not, attend. it was very light on the ground. The 90s and noughties were a very bare old time. You know, this generation is amazing. As you say, in America, like the Parkland survivors, just going to Washington and saying, we're not having this. You know, I've had a young activist here from 9-11 because there was a school affected and all the children, you know, had breathing problems. And, you know, the young people who will just go to DC and go, we deserve more, we deserve justice. But that really wasn't, and listen, I'm not saying no one was protesting about anything at that time. Of course, some people were, but I feel like there's definitely a resurgence now similar to the 60s and 70s. And Anne just kept going. I think it's the resilience that I admire most yeah, in her. Yeah. What was it like as an actress approaching her as a character? Well, I think first and foremost, it's that word, and I hate it when people say, oh, she was just an ordinary mum, she was an ordinary wife. And I go, what does ordinary mean, really? What I mean, okay, it's in the dictionary, you know, but yeah. I don't like that term. But, you know, this wasn't a woman who was engaged politically at all. You know, she had a very under-the-radar life, very very happy, happily married, family life. So first and foremost, it was tackling that bit. For me, I felt tackling somebody who became an activist wasn't the hardest bit. It was how how do you show the change? How do you show somebody sort of enlightenment in a way or somebody's, you know, how through grief, um, and and it's the change that that you know it's it's the sort of os- osmosis of that you know drive that then infects somebody's character and and obviously through the part I think I played Anne from thirty six to sixty two when she died so obviously there's an element of aging in that but yeah I mean in some ways because she wasn't a political beast initially it's sometimes harder you know because it's just finding those little you go right where did it where did it really kick in and and what was fascinating when you spoke to people in the legal sort of system who had met her had said you know she educated herself she could have been a solicitor by the end of it and this was a woman who I think she'd left school at 16 you know she had no further education but had got so involved in what she didn't know she would learn and people said she could really stand sort of toe-to-toe you know, with anybody on the, the sort of, you know, on a legal platform and, and give them a run for a, the money. So when you play a character, do you ever take characteristics forward with you that you think, yeah, I want to live a bit more like that? Or do you know what I mean? Do you ever take yeah. a bit of that character's resilience with you? Do you ever take a bit of that that fighting spirit or some insight that you got from her that you think I'm going to use that? Well, I think 
and was it was a dignity within it. She didn't get angry, you know. <laughs> just, you know, I get I can be a bit. I've, I've got better as I've got older, but you know, being involved in things politically, and you know, you're saying about not going to demos. I used to go to demos in the nineties, and probably yeah. the only person that you know. And and it's interesting now as we as we think the older generation were not interested when I went to demos in the nineties when they were you know younger people were thin on the ground it was the grey power you know what I mean it was OAPs it was the older generation who are out there in mass you know they were the ones who were getting out and protesting well um, so do you remember going to demos in the 90s and there being lots of old people there and yeah. older people there and you were one of the few students yeah, definitely. A lot. I remember going down to the Tory Party conference in Blackpool to protest because I, I lived with my grandfather from being, you know, sort of early teens, who was very political. So I'd go down with him and we'd go on the train and it was packed full of, you know, the pensioners, you know, the pensioners were really, you know, they were, they were out and en masse. I'm so angry. interesting. <laughs> angry, <laughs> you know? angry, elderly people. I, you know, we just had... Uh, an episode on Greenham Common. And yeah. it was like absolutely fascinating how, yeah, a lot of them were like young or middle-aged or older mums. They were not students. I mean, Gen Z is a really a generation to itself. Yeah. Um, but this is really fascinating that, yeah, those things, I thought those things weren't going on because students weren't doing them. But actually looking back, I wasn't going to the right protests. I remember going to one about university fees coming in. And Ginny, this will be an anathema to you because I, when I went to university, it was free to go. I went to Oxford University and it was free to go and I got paid to go. I got a little grant. It wasn't very much, but I got paid to go and I was the last year. And I went on the protest to say there should not be fees for the next generation. Everyone else was just like, oh, pull the ladder up, Jack. We've got ours for free. It's fine. It's only 1,500 quid. And I was like, no, because it's a slippery slope and, you know, only 1,500 quid to you. And yeah, yeah, but if you're broke, you get a grant. And I was like, yeah, but it's telling people that. All they hear is 1,500 quid. And if you're from a working class family, et cetera. Anyway, I had those arguments and there was hardly anyone like on the, I remember going to a march in Oxford. There's about 10 people there and it was embarrassing. I clearly, I've learned something now. I was at the wrong demos. The there were demos, demos full of old people. But these were the people, I mean, I'm going away from them, but when we got to fe- that generation had seen the war. These were people who had either fought in the war or just on the tail end of the war. So they knew they had to fight and they knew, you know, they were so engaged. And But what I took from Anne was that dig- was the dignity, but also there's so much love in Anne. Now, Anne's whole drive was about love. It was love for her son. And what was devastating was that a family sort of fell apart in a way because of it. But I don't think the love ever went out with the relationship with her partner, Steve, you know, or with her other children. But, you know, it was it was her love for Kevin that drove her, you yeah. know, I think first and foremost. <laughs> and she was very dignified. She was obviously could channel her anger in 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 a, in a I, I mean, I don't know. People say, well, she got, you know, was it? this that killed her, blah, 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 blah. You just don't, I mean, you know, we can only surmise. But there was a brilliant line in the piece where a daughter says to a series played by Lily Shepherd, you know, this is killing you. And she said, no, this is what's keeping me going, you know. Wow. About, and I just thought that's fascinating. Purpose, know? absolutely. And Anne got to see the verdict overturned and she got to see that acknowledgement. And so I have no doubt that that line is a beautiful 
you know, it's a beautifully written piece of drama, whether she said it in real life or not, I don't know, that that purpose was, I'm sure, something she lived for. Yeah. It's a really remarkable performance on your part and uh, a story worth watching for anybody who wants to change the world, who wants to fight for justice, who doesn't want to take no for an answer and who doesn't know uh, what the clever people in Westminster know or what all the lawyers know or what all the, you know, sometimes we feel put off by that. You know, you go into the House of Commons, it's a palace, you know, it's high ceilings, it's a cathedral. And it's really easy to be put off and think those people have got a different accent from me in the main. They've got a different, they walk differently. They seem confident. They know things and they're going to put me in my place by saying what you don't understand is. And Anne didn't let any of that put her off. She kept going. So I think it's it's a really inspiring piece to watch, but also bring tissues because uh, Maxine's performance is, as ever, very moving. Uh, yeah, it must have felt like a great privilege to play her, yeah. I would imagine. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And, you know, I mean, I know probably when we've done the publicity and Simon Heath, the producer, and Kevin, the writer, have been asked about the casting, they said, oh, well, but, you know, they have to say it, you know. <laughs> she was the only person we could think of. And I'm sure that's because of, if it is true, because of, um, you know, my sort of relationship with, with politics. But it, it does... You know, sometimes good things can come out of that. And, yes. uh, <laughs> but it, it was, it was to think that, you know, because I'd seen Anne on the local news and I remember yeah. thinking, could I play her? Could I get near her? Oh, I don't know. Because first and foremost, it's not, I wasn't thinking about what she'd achieved. I was thinking about her as a person, you know, I think, yeah. can I get inside that? You know, so it was, yeah, I was, but I, I, I always think, now, it doesn't matter whether you think, if somebody else says to me, I think you can play that part. And even if my brain's going, oh, I can't, I go, okay, if they can see it, then I have to trust that, you know. And I'm really sorry to tell you, they did ask me first. Did I thought, so I that, knew it. That, was, that, might, that might have been a small light. They were like, look, if, if you say no, and we'll understand why, because you're really not right for it. And crucially, you've never acted in a drama, they said. But they said, we will go to Maxine Pig next. Uh, thanks, but, <laughs> thanks for letting me step it aside. Thanks yeah, I just thought, do you know what? The show's going to be just a little bit better with you in it uh, than it's me in it. Uh, <laughs> uh, I, I feel fairly confident uh, that the, that me doing the accent would have been the most distracting thing. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? Uh, lol. Now, the reason I want to talk about lots of different ways to be a feminist, you know, you, Maxine, you're a very well-known feminist and uh, activist, but you're playing so many different women lately on television and uh, in the theatre. And you famously played Hamlet, which is a really interesting thing now to see women get to take on those, you know, tentpole Shakespearean roles and bring their feminism with them. I am really interested in uh, what drew you to the rules of the game, which is this new BBC thriller. And the opening scene has our guilty feminist friend and regular in it, Susie Wakoma. She's one of our best friends, one of my personal best friends, and one of the best friends of the show. And she is a detective in it. Could you please tell me and Ginny a little bit about the rules of the game and what drew you to it? 
So Rules of the Game is set in a sportswear company, um, set somewhere in the northwest of England, it's supposed to be Cheshire, somewhere in Cheshire, in the northwest of England. And the drama starts, there's been an incident, um, and we start to then unravel the culture at the company and basically toxic masculinity, coercion. Ruth Fowler, the writer, sort of started off, she sort of wrote it through the, let's say, through the prism of the Me Too um, movement, but how it infected workplaces and, and how it's dealt with. And my character, Sam, is the COO of this, this company, who's quite sort of striding and apparently appears quite confident. But there's a point where you think, is, you know, and I think with Sam, it's, is she a perpetrator or is she a victim or is she both? You know, she is of a different generation and we, 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 we start to, the younger workforce, the younger women in the workforce, you start to realise there's been some quite serious incidents that have gone on. Um, so we so, don't yeah. know whether your character is a feminist or not. Uh, <laughs> at the beginning, though, <laughs> yeah. but you're, you're yeah. indicating, am I allowed to say... Yeah, because it's on iPlayer, isn't it? So it's all yeah. out there, isn't it? I don't think this character is as feminist as Anne Williams. She's going to go with that. Yeah, she's not... Um, no, no. I don't think I wouldn't say so. I think Sam would be horrified if you were. <laughs> if the, even the very comparison was made. Um, and this is interesting that we're now getting far enough through or from Me Too into a place where television shows are starting to be made about it. And you need a little bit of breathing room for a commentary on it. Um, Ginny, how is the Me Too movement playing out there in the States? Because it started in the States and it's something that's clearly travelled the world so much so that you're getting BBC dramas about it now. What's the situation in America with Me Too at the moment? Yeah, I mean, I definitely think that uh, like the men who were Me too are kind of starting to come back, depending on how Me too they were. Like, I don't think we're going to get a Harvey Weinstein revival, but um, I feel like Louis is coming back. He's touring. Um, I don't know. Aziz Ansari, I, I guess he was always sort of... Bill Cosby got out of jail, didn't he? Yeah, I think that... I mean, I do think the movement had a strong, lasting impact, but I also think Do you think, think it's that- changed the culture... I think that it's changed what people will say, and I don't know if it's changed what people will think, you know, or what people think. I think people have a better sense of, like, what is or is not appropriate to say, and they're more careful because they're afraid of getting in trouble. I think that that's a big thing that has happened in the last, like, five years with cancel culture in general is um, is people are just more cautious and, and kind of know that they can get publicly outed for things. Um, then again, I don't think that that's such a bad thing. I think that, you know, it benefits a lot of people to kind of learn to be a little bit more careful about what they say. Um, has it changed the culture? I don't know. I, I like hear things like a friend was trying to pitch a show to Hulu and they said they had too many female dominated shows already. Like I, I hear that kind of thing. So I don't know if people are maybe just have think that me too is done and that we've like made the progress we need to make for now. Wow. I feel like we've hardly started. That's, That's I mean, discouraging. Yeah, it is discouraging, yeah. Yeah, I guess Me Too has been sort of subsumed with larger issues as possible, um, but I feel like so many issues are so large that we need to be moving forward on all fronts, you know? Are you analysing it there now? You had the morning show uh, with Jennifer Aniston that's had a second season. Are you feeling like you have an appetite for shows like the one Maxine's in The Rules of the Game? I do. I mean, I only watch dramas that I've definitely watched that. I, I do think it's 
almost like it's like people talk about comedy being cathartic and I am a comedian, but I find a dramatization of the same kind of issues I face in my own life to be even more cathartic. Um, cause I can kind of like fall into it and distract myself basically, even though it's the kind of thing I can't ever feel like I wanted to feel like true to life because then I, otherwise I wouldn't fully engage with it, but, um, to also kind of be able to separate myself from it enough because it's like a fictional dramatization. Um, so I definitely, I have like a strong appetite for those kind of shows, but I think I probably did before the Me Too movement too. Um, I generally hate the, I feel like there's this idea sometimes that like stuff is like too real. So they can't do shows about it. Like, I feel like during the pandemic, they were like, oh, you can't reference the pandemic in your content. And and even like stuff I was writing at the time, they were like, people don't want to be reminded of the pandemic. And I was like, who's going to forget like, we can't leave our houses. Like, how how is me referencing this in, like, an audio show going to remind people of something they want to be distracted yeah. from? And I feel the same when way. When they're only me. listening to it because they can't leave the house. Right. They're sitting there masked. Yes. Not, they can't breathe through the mask. And probably, exactly. Um, yeah, I think there's going to be a lot more appetite for the discussion of the Me Too movement. Was it fun playing Sam? Was there an excitement to playing a thriller and a whodunit? Yes, and know about the who done it i think i it was interesting playing a woman of who had that sort of power but then was hanging on for dear life because really at the end of the day it was down to it was a it's a family run business so it's down to the two men they had the you know the two brothers who run the business who had the final say but uh, i think because it was more unraveling a work culture sam's character starts to see there's another there's another incident that's happened 10 years before and then she starts to realise how everything's linked up. Walking, spending nine weeks in high heels, a really long blonde wig. So it was actually the the weight of the gendered expectations of hair and heels that yeah. was the tricky thing. It, we were in a glass building in the summer in Manchester, you know, and it was just, it was boiling in there. I mean, I'm not complaining. I'm very lucky to do the job I do. But sure, it was not down a mine, etc. Yes, but exactly. it was very not packing parachutes, as my mother would say. So, <laughs> um, but it's yeah, it, I suppose it was. But I never really thought of it like that. I thought this is a drama set in a workplace rather than this is a a who done it. Just happens to be, you know, there's a murder. You know, I think you get that pretty early on. There's been somebody's or somebody's dead anyway, yeah. whether it's a murder or not. Somebody has has lost their life in some way and. But I did realise I think I'd prefer my next role to play like a farmer's wife or not even a farmer's wife, just a farmer, actually. I'm a feminist, yeah, but I just I'm, said that. That's yeah. disgusting. Um, <laughs> a farmer's wife. I want to play uh, a If far- you're listening, a- commissioners, <laughs> writers out there, any any guilty feminists thinking I'd love Maxie Pig to be in something, oh, I'm going to... Please something. send her a script when, which which is called The Farmer's Wife. Just The Farmer. And, yeah, but there's no yeah, farmer. She's He's dead. But, um, attached. Yeah. <laughs> I, that, do you know that what that reminds me of? Is, uh, do you remember that? There's an Amy Schumer sketch. It's the clips for the best actress at the Oscars. And the first one's called The Soldier's Wife. And it's someone very famous. She's got like people like Meryl Streep and people like Amy Adams to do it. It's going, Bill, come home. Please come home. And she's like crying on the floor. And then the next one's called The Sailor's Wife. And it's like, come home. I need you to come home. And every single one is a woman sitting on the floor on the telephone weeping, please come home. Uh, 
And, uh, and I, so, yeah, so no wonder your mind went there. You've been in the business a long time and you know what your chances are. Uh, but you are, you, if you do The Farmer's Wife, I'm telling you, you're going to win an Oscar. I can I see just, it. The farm, he's been mangled in some machinery and then, you know, uh, yeah, the, the yeah. husband. What's interesting about, I think, what's happened with us again is how many people have said to me, oh, your character's so unlikable. Oh, she's horrible. And I'm like, wow. So it's, um, all right, she does some pretty dodgy things, but you go, so as a woman, <laughs> you can be a bit of a, a bitch and yeah. you're really unlikable. But you can be a man and be in maybe a family drama where you bump off loads of other people. It's part of, you know. Uh, Tony um, Soprano. <laughs> murder people. Walter White. The Peaky Blind, whatever. You know, and, and I, it's just been a real eye-opener. And other women have gone, I can't watch. She's not likeable. She's just so unlikable. These people are unlikable. And I'm like, what? It's that whole thing about what makes a female character on our screens unlikable, unlikable, you know. yes. And what is acceptable from women in terms of likability? Yeah. I, I think there's such a low bar. I think women really, and I mean, unless you're apologizing in a short skirt, you're probably going to be unlikable. Let's yeah. be honest. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, Sammy's, but she's, I was like, she's just a woman trying to hang on to a power and hang on to a job. It's, you know, she doesn't, yeah, but yeah, anyway, it's just. Does been, acting help you with that? That you could just have to see that person's point of view? So even if you're playing Richard III, you have to figure out what makes this, what drives this person, and therefore you can empathize with them. Do you think that if we made acting a bit more mandatory, I don't know how you do that, just to be clear, but if there was maybe more drama in school and thinking about it from that point of view, yeah. or, you know, I don't know, it, that, that it would help us empathize with each other? Well, and I think it's not that I don't likeable. I mean, I like I say, I do, I wasn't like, oh, I've got to. Make, I don't want to make a likeable. I just want to be truthful. Yeah. But I think you do have to sort of find reasons why, and then you sometimes find characters that just go, there isn't a. Re-. They're just. But it's very. I think as actors, you do try and find. You know, the drama is what is the incident that created this? The this the series of incidents that put this person. To a, you know, but yeah, people, I was watching a brilliant interview last night with uh, the late, great uh, Anthony Cher, and, but he was talking about people calling actors lovies. And he just said, okay, you know, let them come and stand next to me, learn all these lines and then go on stage in front of people uh. and realise <laughs> that I'm not soft and I'm not a lovey. You know, I don't know. I know it's a slightly different thing, but it was just, it's, yeah, Anthony Sher, I oh. want to say on behalf of your mother, you're not packing parachutes. <laughs> However, uh, rest in power, interview. we miss you. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Now, here's the thing. In Britain, we have someone called Speaker of the House, Ginny. And a Speaker of the House, if you've probably seen British Parliament on American television at times, and it's very rowdy. It's like it's like a school, really. It's like lots of schoolboys and now increasingly some schoolgirls, but traditionally schoolboys, booing and yaying and hear, neighing and uh, and <laughs> causing lots of, you know, so someone will get up and make a point or give a speech and the people on the opposite bench will tend to boo them and the people on the same side of the political divide will tend to cheer them. Now, in order for anything to get done in 
the house. There has to be someone keeping order. And that person is called the speaker. In fact, I'm doing a podcast with John Burko, who was the last speaker, to find out everything he knows about how our democracy works, because I do not know enough about how it all works. I don't know, like, what are all these people for? And what what's the difference between a special advisor? And are they all civil servants, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. Like, if I, as an activist, want to understand, we've just done an episode on Partygate, which is, I don't know if you've heard, but our Prime Minister and his staff were hosting parties. And so I wanted to know just things about how it works to understand that more. And so I asked John about it. So he's the most recent speaker and probably the most famous speaker in many ways, because he always used to say, order, and tell people off for getting out of control. There has been only one female Speaker of the House, and that's in hundreds of years. And that person is Betty Boothroyd, Ginny, before I ask Maxine about her, do you have an equivalent in America? Who keeps order? Well, we have a Speaker of the House uh, who is Nancy Pelosi. I don't think that it's the same role. The person who keeps order, um, I don't know. I think I would have to watch C-SPAN to know, which I definitely... Because I've never seen Nancy Pelosi say, come on now. No, no, no. Um, (laughs) I I did recently watch The Darkest Hour, I don't know if you guys have seen that. It's um, with Gary Oldman, who I would never recognize because he looks different in every movie, but he plays Churchill. And so there are some great, like, parliament scenes where everyone's just yelling at each other. Um, and that is all men, but it's set during World War II. Um, I don't know who's the person who, like, keeps track of things. I have to imagine that it's not even, like, an assigned person, but rather just, like, some ambitious Congress person. You know what I mean? Like a 38-year-old from, I don't know, Wyoming. Idaho. Being like, I'm going to make my name. Uh, we have a very disorganized government. I don't think there is any order. Uh. Yeah. You have filibustering and things. Like strange, very, very strange. Uh, I, I, how America works is not clear to me. But what I don't think it's clear to anyone in America either. And that's why it's in such a mess. And I, I mean, and, I, and, that, and we're speaking from a very low bar over here. I'll be absolutely <laughs> honest with you. I really feel like... You're almost the only country we can point to in the West at the moment where and go, <laughs> that's too bad, we what's point, going on over there? We point to you guys, so that's a, that's a bummer. We're just basically two people in T-shirts that says, I'm with stupid, yeah, point, yeah. <laughs> both pointing at each other. And just to be clear, the Speaker does not just go order, order. The Speaker has to know a hell of a lot about parliamentary law. They have to know what's allowed on the floor, who's allowed on the floor, what orders and bills are allowed to be brought and passed and what the procedure is. They have to know so much and they do have uh, people with them to advise them on those things, but they really do have to hold a lot of authority. It's a tough old uh, job. And Betty Boothroyd was a working class woman and she was the first and to date only female speaker. Could you tell us a little bit about Betty and why you wanted to do a musical about her? Well, because, so Betty Boothroyd, you know, Born in, uh, I think she was 1929, 30, in, in Dewsbury, West Yorkshire. Her, her parents were, you know, Labour Party members and she worked her way up through the Labour Party. You know, I'd quite struggled to become an MP and did. But, but for me, what was fascinating and what I wanted to sort of, you know, mirror against what's happening today was Betty came from a generation, whatever side of the political spectrum we're on, it felt to me you as a member of parliament were there to serve. You were there to serve the people. And Betty very much was, I speak to serve, you know. And um, and now we don't really have that, are we? Very minute. You know what I mean? We, we yeah. have a very different breed of politician now. Not saying everybody. We know there's, you know, but I don't 
but generally, no. But the culture self-serving rather has than, shifted. Yes, very in that much direction. So. The ratio, I think, has tipped into the self-serving. But also, yes. Max, to be fair, they don't just serve themselves. They serve their friends. Exactly. Uh, like if you're a close friend of someone in the cabinet, you're likely to get favours. If you're the brother-in-law of somebody, yes, yep. the wife of someone, you'll probably get a lot. So like the trick is now in this great British democracy is to make very good friends or marry into the family of someone in the cabinet and then you'll get your needs met. So I'm just saying yeah. there is still a kind of democracy. It's just... It's- it's just a requires a lot more work on the behalf of the constituents. And we've gone back to the feudal system of basically that it's the landowners and the people with the money who, you know, will. Uh, and, and, but for me, I wanted to when talking about what you were saying about finding about the intricacies with John Burke about the the parliamentary, you know, the intricacies of parliamentary democracy. Basically, the heart of the piece when we start, I'm co-writing as well. I've got to say with a fantastic Cyril Davis, who's an amazing performer, composer, writer. And, um, you know, the main acorn of it for us is, is what is the future of parliamentary democracy? Where are we now? What, what is there a future for it? Is it, you know, it, it feels like it's... <laughs> yeah, I hear you. <laughs> so this, this piece started, you know, it's, very, it's fun. It's about a group of four women and a man who are in an amateur dramatics group in Dewsbury who decide to put on a show about Betty Boothroyd. And it's what Betty means to them. And they're all from, again, all very much on the different parts of the political spectrum or not, or, you know, they don't think they're political. It's about a group of people and it's about how people can come together because we're very much polarised at the moment, aren't we? You know what I mean? People are very divided by the views. and it, You so probably can't relate to this, Ginny, but our country's become very polarised, uh, right and left, Brexit and no Brexit, et cetera, et cetera. I think it's probably difficult for you in America to imagine a, such a divided nation with such a polarising leader. And so I love that you're doing something funny. Yes, satirical. it is funny. It's not too political. You know, it is political, but I don't want people to go, oh God, here she goes again. It's not. It's... <laughs> I've seen the poster. You're making a funny face. You dressed up as Benny Bruce Royd and you're making a funny face. And I was like, I know this is going to be funny. I've seen it's, the poster. It's going to be hopefully if we pull it off it's going to be fun it's going to be a fun night out with a little bit of politics you know what I mean but it's not that it's about celebration of an amazing woman really you know so it won't be eating your vegetables no no it's very much pudding but it's the kind of pudding where afterwards your mum would say do you know there was something in that that was good for you (laughs) yeah that's perfect I think that yeah can yeah. I steal that? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You're like, she's mashed up some broccoli and put it into the chocolate cake, <laughs> but all you could taste is chocolate cake. Yes. Uh, but you've walked away with the nutrition of something greater. Um, I think that Betty Boothroyd is a remarkable British figure in as much as she was a working class woman. She didn't go to university, did she, Betty Boothroyd? No, and she you know, she was a tiller girl. She did, she was... What's a tiller girl? So they were sort of a, a dance troupe. So, you know, the windmill in Soho, you know, they were, uh, you'll see that lots of leg kicking, the formation, high heel shoes. Rockets, maybe. Is that a good equivalent, Ginny? But it was in the Second World War and some women in the windmill, uh, at the windmill, there were some shows where they were completely naked, but they used to just pose in still positions. Yeah, I don't think that was... Was Betty Boothroyd. We don't want to put that out there. No, I don't want to put Betty Boothroyd was posing naked because we will get complaints. Uh, But that is part (laughs) of the windmill history. 
And a friend of mine recently told me his grandmother was a windmill girl and she was she used to do the naked plateaus. And he said before the war, she went to Germany. She was performing there and she ended up getting stuck in a room with Goebbels. And he was very inappropriate and she had to climb out the window. And I went, oh my God, wait till the Me Too movement hears about this. Goebbels is going to be cancelled. I was like, like, I just, I was just like, oh wow, this is a side of Goebbels we didn't even know about. Um, wow, what a story though. What a, yeah, absolutely. What a lucky escape. Yeah. But the story I heard as well was when those women, as a costume designer told me, because they couldn't show the, you know, they were naked, but they'd have like a covering over the the front bottom, as we like to say. So yeah. they'd have material with a ball bearing that went up the bum hole to keep it in place. Wow. Wow. Well, I mean, these are all sorts of things that I hope we're going to learn about in the Betty Boothroyd show. If that's not in there yet, I, I assume you're still I writing it. I don't think the tiller... I, I say, I'm going to get myself in so much trouble now. I'm going to be sued by the tiller. I, I don't... They, they were, I think they were very different shows. Um, they were very different shows. Okay. So Betty Boothroyd was one of those. Amazing. Yes. And then she went on to do all these other incredible things. And we will be taken on this journey, we hope, in your show. Are you still writing it now? Yes, we're still, we were workshopping it last week. Um, and now we're, you know, we're sort of writing. We've got another sort of workshop in uh, June time. And then we will go, it goes into production in November, end of October. And who are you writing it with? Cyril Davis. So he's um, a writer, composer, performer. He's extraordinary. And I saw a piece that he'd written at the OVIC, did a series, they did um, the night was about celebrating the NHS and people had put monologues on and Cyril had written one, he'd written a mini musical about the NHS and basically the NHS was this faded sort of, you know, cabaret star. Um, And I just went, who's this? He's brilliant. Who's written this? And then I found his name and then... So I've just got in touch with him and said, would you be interested in writing a musical about Betty Boothroyd with me? And and luckily he said yes, because I have no no knowledge or skill in right, you know, in, in musical I bet composition. You must, must have thought that was a great day. He must have been like, Maxine Pete just called me and asked me to do a musical with her. Um, I cannot wait to see it because I looked a little bit, I looked up some of his stuff online and he looks fabulous in yes. every conceivable way. Very much so. Um, so I'm very excited. Uh, and I, what part of Betty Boothroyd do you think you'll be taking with you into your future as you step into your political future and your future, just future as a woman and a feminist, Max? I think just owning your power, really owning that power and not being afraid of it. You know, Betty was, she's just our own person unapologetically and that's what makes her so popular. And I think it's always that, thing of not apologizing you know when will I learn not to apologize for myself you know yeah it's it's hard to know we will take a leap (laughs) she's still in the house of lords isn't she she's still there she's 92 I spoke to her the other day on the phone or I had a little cry because it was I was I'm speaking to an icon she was gorgeous she was amazing she's still got this voice that's as clear as a bell you know she was she, is yeah. she excited about the musical? She's very much behind it. You know, is she? she? Said, yeah, she said she can come up to Manchester. She will, but because say she's ninety-two. Yeah, you know? I, but, can't we get her? A, we'll get her a driver. I'll come. We'll get. We'll get. We'll get. You must come because you know. I think I was reading. She learned 
She did hand gliding. She learned to hand glide in her early 70s. I mean, what a woman. Wow. That is a woman. Yeah, Yeah, that is a woman. So you've got three amazing things that people can watch. If you haven't seen Anne, you can watch it again on ITV. And you can see Maxine playing Sam and also opposite Susie Wacoma. Other one of the first scenes is you playing uh, opposite Susie Wacoma. What's she like to play opposite? Oh, you know, Susie lights, she walks in the room, as you know, and she just lights it up. She was so brilliant to have on set, just as a human being, first and foremost. The young women on that job, I was so inspired by them because they're just striding forward and taking no shit. And 100%. I just, oh, it was it, Callie Cook and, and Raki Thakar and, and Susie. I, I felt very sort of humbled and, and inspired by them. But and it just gave me so much confidence. I thought the business is in safe hands. They're going to make these changes. But she's just, she's stunning. What a fantastic actress, but what a, a fantastic human being as well. So she really is. The thing I say to Susie sometimes is, you don't know what rooms that you're not in are like. So she's Susie's never been in a room that she's not been in. And I said, they're not as good. No. Rooms no. that don't have Susie, because she does. She brings in that light. Some people do. They just come in and they light up the room. And yeah. there's a different energy when she walks into the room and when she comes onto screen. So I was delighted to see two of my faves on screen together. I hope you get to work together a lot more and we get oh, to see so. you do some kind of double act together because that would be, I mean, I, if people are making television for me, but I feel others would want to see it too. Um, Maxine, is there anything you came to say you didn't get to say? Tori's out. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, where can we uh, we can put tickets in the show notes? But can we can we already get tickets for Betty? Is it the Royal I think, Exchange? I think it's gone on sale. Like I say, it's not till you know the end of this year. So you know, I can imagine people will be slightly cautious. But the tickets are on sale. I think the whole season, they, unusually for the theatre, they announced the full season in one go. Great. So if you'd like to make sure you get a ticket for Betty at the Manchester Royal Exchange and wherever you're in the country, it's worth a trip to Manchester. It's just so wonderful, Manchester. And the Royal Exchange is one of my favourite theatres in the whole country. So I will definitely be going to Manchester to see it. Uh, So if you're in, around, near or can get to Manchester, go to see Betty. I know it's just going to be a really wonderful laugh, but also like a feminist entertaining end of year show. And I'll buy you a drink like Ginny. Well, if you'll come and take it, I'll... Uh... <laughs> oh, that's... Yes, Maxine will definitely buy you specifically a drink. That's an absolute offer. And, you know, actually, that's... the Max Maxine, that's a dangerous place to offer that because you can't really get out of the theatre without going through the bar at the Royal Exchange, can you? There's no stage door no. there, really. You can't really get out no. without going past the punters. I've had some brilliant conversations with people, though, and, uh, you know, you just go to the bar and... Yeah, people have maybe had a couple of drinks and telling you what they feel about the show, then how the show relates to their life. It's, it's yeah, it's, they've had some pretty uh, pretty fascinating <laughs> chats with strangers. So go and, uh, and Maxine's not only going to get a round in, but she wants to hear what you thought of the show. Be sensitive and say only... Yeah, exactly. Yeah. She's, still, she, she, she's still in the middle of the run, you know. Constructive like, criticism. No criticism at all. Just you're amazing. That's all anyone wants to hear in the middle of a run. There's nothing they can do. I'm sure, though, that the show is going to be absolutely wonderful and I can't wait. I hope I get invited up for press night because then I can wear a frock. Thank you so much, Maxine. It's just wonderful to have you. Uh, Bigger applause, Maxine Peake. Thank you. Thank you so much. Oh, lovely. It's lovely to meet you, Ginny. Thank you, Deborah. Um, Ginny, what would you like to plug? 
Okay, I have a stand-up show in New York City on February 26th. I'm recording an hour of stand-up. It's called I Finished My 20s and All I Got Was The Stupid Sobriety. It's a one-woman show. It's gonna. I have an opener, and then it's going to be me for a whole hour. And I would love if you guys come if you're in New York City or near New York City. Ginny will buy you a drink if you come. We've established this. She'll definitely buy you a drink. Uh, she'll. Ha- or no, she didn't say that. She said she'd have a drink with you. And I don't drink, uh, so you can have a drink at me. Yeah. Okay, great. You can have a drink at Ginny after her stand-up special, which is recording at? Westside Comedy Club. It's on the Upper West Side of New York. It's at 8 p.m. Get the tickets online at Westside Comedy Club or they're in the um, the Lincoln bio on my Twitter. Great. Lincoln bio. And, and also follow Ginny Hogan on Twitter and Instagram at Ginny, G-I-N-N-Y, Hogan, H-O-G-A-N. You will not regret it. And if you're in New York City or can get there, go and see her stand-up special. Ginny, we hope to see you in London soon. Thank you so much for joining us today. Ginny Hogan, everybody. Thank you so much. This was so Woo! fun. You have been listening to The Guilty Feminist with me, Deborah Francis White, guest co-host Ginny Hogan, and our very special guest, Maxine Peake. The Guilty Feminist theme tune was composed by Mark Hodge and produced by Nick Sheldon. The producer was Tom Solinsky from the Spontaneity Shop. Thanks to Rachel Craft, Regina DC, and everyone who made this episode happen, as well as all of you for listening. For more information about this and other episodes, visit guiltyfeminist.com. She got to see the unlawful killing verdict. She did, yeah. yeah. She got. Um, uh, Tom, can you cut that out? Because I feel I should know that, but I just wanted to know from Maxine. I didn't, I, didn't, I didn't get all the way to the end of the show. I will finish it, but I didn't get all the way to the end of the show because I've just been stowed under. Uh, I have and I to just say, was like, I, oh my God. I did film it three years ago, so some of them are a bit like that. I can't remember. <laughs> I'm going to get so just, much trouble. We'll just cut all of that out, Tom. We'll cut all of that out. <laughs> Emma, Emma, you don't need to worry. What? I mean, uh, you have to ask Emma. Um, the Guilty Feminist is provided exclusively from Acast. Find it wherever you get your podcasts.